and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Last year, I had the great joy of interviewing then-debut novelist Julieta Henderson about her divinely heartwarming book, The Funny Thing About Norman Foreman. I still remember the moment I finished reading it and thinking, wow, that book was special. So when I learned about Julieta's new book, Sincerely Me, I knew I couldn't pass up the opportunity to chat again. Filled with Julieta's trademark warmth and humour, Sincerely Me was a brilliant, hopeful read, shining a light on families in all shapes and sizes and the debilitating effects of grief. Another must read from a supremely talented writer. Welcome back to the podcast, Julieta. Oh, thank you so much for that wonderful welcome, Claudine. I remember last time we spoke as well, and it was equally lovely. It's so nice to hear those lovely things about yourself, and and it's it's really nice to be here again with you. Oh, I'm so delighted, and I want to say congratulations on book number two. Thank you. It's kind of weird, but I can I, I've lined them up and I've taken a couple of photos together, and it's like when you've got two books, can you can you actually? I think I can call myself a real author now, and it's quite it it is quite amazing because after the first when you think oh was that just a fluke and and you know yeah. my favorite thing to say is the first one took me 50 years to write and the second one I had to write in a year sort of thing but which it wasn't really it was more like 16 17 months it's quite a quite a nice feeling to have two out oh bless you are most definitely an author my friend don't give a doubt it <laughs> thank you thank you thank you not that I you need so. me to tell you but anyway. oh I, I need all the help I can get all, all, all the praise I can get we love it uh, oh that's wonderful to say that Norman Foreman was a hit is likely an understatement but I wondered if when you were thinking about writing book number two you thought oh, I can't follow this up with a story as charming or as widely acclaimed uh, or did you already know that you were going to write about Danny and Wolfie and felt sure that we'd love them just as much Look, I did. I, I did obviously have those concerns because, you know, that's the, that's the flip side of, of having a book that is well received is that then, especially, well, definitely if it's your debut, because then it's, you know, the difficult second, second album thing. But, but I think... Luckily for me, I'd already, I was getting so many queries from people saying, oh, you're writing a sequel to Norman. And I knew I was never writing a sequel to Norman at that time. I don't mean never, but I mean, I wasn't writing a sequel to Norman straight after, that's for sure. And because I already had these characters, these other characters, it's very crowded up there in my head. There's a lot of characters waiting, <laughs> waiting to waiting to have their time in the sun. It was so different that um, I, I didn't ever... Rightly or wrongly, I didn't ever really have those concerns about following it because because it really came out of me so um, it came out so easily and because I think too you know I think I might be one of those annoying people that says the pandemic helped me in a way because it forced me and you know and people do say of course for a writer oh, it was your dream come true and in a way it was because my schedule didn't really change much I get up I go for a walk I sit at home and I write but. The fact that I lost all my paid work, shall we say, I, lo- I lost basically all of it. And suddenly I had, you know, 24 hours a day to write 
fiction and write to a contract because I had a two book deal. Mm. And so you'd think that was your dream come true, but actually it it just made for another 23 hours of procrastination throughout the day, <laughs> to be honest. But it it was, I think it was good for me because I had this freedom of nothing else to do really, except write. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And these characters just, uh, the story didn't appear straight away, but the characters were so there that I didn't ever have that worry. Oh, am I living up to Norman? Because I was so deep and far into them straight, pretty much straight away. So it was luckily the distraction of the distraction of nothing, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. All right. So where did the idea for this book come from? Well, my twisted imagination as usual, but again, as usual, the characters definitely come to me before a story, a plot does. I'm very much character driven. And I I really wanted to write a story about siblings, but adult siblings, because I'm really interested in that, in the, the, the aspect of the, where you, where you sit in your family, whether you're the youngest, the oldest, the brother, the sister, the, even the gap in age between you, how that affects the way that you're brought up, the way your parents react to you, the way you react to your parents and your siblings. I'm really interested in, and it's my little theory, but I, I really, well, it's probably not my theory, but I've I've taken it on. I do think that you take that with you into adulthood as well and of how you interact with, you know, colleagues, friends socially um, and, and your partner um, and your own children and all of that. And I think it, it really does sort of shape your life. And so I had wanted to write, well, I did want to write a story in some way about that. But when I started to write, it was originally going to be, so it's a dual narrative, dual point of view, again, as was Norman. But it's it was to be between Danny, the first person, Danny Mulberry, and his sister, Lou. But I very quickly, when I started writing, and Wolfie, who's Danny's niece, came into the picture really quickly, like probably, you know, within a few weeks of trying to grappling with Lou's voice, I realised that the reason I was grappling with it was because Wolfie needed her voice. And I didn't, I really didn't want a book with three different points of view. So then I sort of flipped everything on its head. And so the the point of views became between Danny and the niece. And um, and and also, I didn't ever intend. I mean, you know, you, you have read sincerely me, and it's he—he he sort of, you know, this this guy who's a bit of a, you know, no hoper, and he's sort of, you know, he he could do better in every aspect of his life. But he's, I I wanted him to have a, a transformation, and I I didn't go out with the purpose of him turning into this accidental guru, which he which he does throughout <laughs> the book, <laughs> but. I wanted him to have a transformation and it got me thinking that, you know, how how much of a transformation could it be? Like there's a guy who can't really take care of his, himself. He's, mm. he's not brave enough to look into his own past and realise why his life is drifting the way it is. And suddenly he's put into a situation where people are looking to him for advice. Um, how much more of a transformation can you get? So so that's where, that's where the accidental guru-y type of thing came along. The other themes that are in the book, grief, as you said, and, you know, mental health, as with I think I always will. I like to touch on those complex themes, but I like to touch on them with a with a light touch because I think, you know, there's a lot of really good, excellent and heartbreaking, probably true books out there that are about very that delve very deeply into mental health um, issues. But I think that there's not really any of us who doesn't, you know, whether it's within your own family, whether it's yourself, whether it's close friends or or colleagues or whatever, we all know 
it's it's a part of it's a part of life but i didn't want to write a book about somebody with depression i wanted to write a book about the people that surround and love somebody who has mental health issues or depression or anxiety and things like that. So that was my intention. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I was just thinking about something that I learned so long ago when you were talking about the relationships between siblings. I once heard a parenting expert, uh, he actually came to the law firm that I was working at and he spoke to us about birth order, the importance of birth order on how a child's personality forms. So first children had a particular personality type second children and third children in particular I always laughed at that because my husband is a third child okay (laughs) yeah and the things that he spoke about really resonated with me it made me understand his character a little bit more and it made me understand myself a little bit more as a firstborn oh that's really interesting see I knew it wasn't my own theory but (laughs) I'm a little sister I don't go through life thinking I'm a little sister. I'm, you know, my sister's a big sister, but you do. I think you just approach things differently. And, and yes, you're so right. As that guy said, your personality is being formed as you're, as you're a kid. And in the book, Sincerely Me, you know, it was, we do go back into, into their childhood. You know, he, he remembers stuff and it's, it's really interesting. It was really interesting to go back and, you know, remember what it was like to be the younger, you know, in his case, he's the older brother and she was the quite a bit younger or, you know, five or six years younger sibling. And, and you know, the feel, I never knew those feelings and and I haven't spoken with my sister about it, but she messaged me last night, actually. And she said, oh, I've just finished. And she said, wow, it brought up some really complex emotions in me. And I was thinking, oh, I wonder what they were. Um, but, you know, like, so so I know what it was like to be a younger sister and, and yeah. And so, yeah, it was it was really interesting to go back and try and remember all that sort of stuff. I think we've kind of like, you know, talked around the plot of this story a little bit. So <laughs> yes. for the benefit of the listeners out there who haven't read your book yet, can you tell us mm. a little bit more about the story? Yeah. So, you know, at its heart, I think, you know, my, my elevator pitch sort of thing is that it's about family at its heart and it's about second chances, but mainly I think it is about the power of forgiveness and, and on both sides and giving second chances on both sides. So, so Danny Mulberry is a guy who, like I said, he could do better in all aspects of his life. He sort of, he drinks a little bit too much. He can't keep down a job. He, um, he can't really sustain a relationship or he's chosen not to. And at the age of nearly 40, he's ended up living in his best mate's garden shed, but albeit of a very posh house in a very posh suburb in London called Belsize Park. But then one day, the consequences of a drunken evening, it comes to the attention of the press and a misleading story and also very misleading photograph appear in a a local London paper. And suddenly all these people up and down the country start to think that Danny is something and someone that he's not. And they start to write in via the paper looking for advice from him. And alongside that, someone else sees the uh, paper and that's his niece, Wolfie, who he doesn't even know exists because he's been estranged from his younger sister for for many, many years. And so within the space of, you know, a week or so, he goes from being this guy who's a bit of a party guy, you know, the world's oldest child sort of thing. And he goes from from that and having no responsibilities to being, you know, a, a big brother again, a uncle and this accidental uh, guru to a, a lot of very lost and lonely souls. 
how he faces up to that. I mean, that's the tagline of the book is, can he become the man they all need him to be? And that's the question we find along his journey. Indeed. Such a wonderful, wonderful story. You kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, and I kind of thought that Danny was what we might call a larrikin character. He was Mm -hmm. mischievous or prone to getting himself into mischief, certainly. Mm. But we soon learn that there's a great sadness lying at the heart of all his failures, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, there is. And he's, and in fact, I'm I'm glad that's exactly as as I like to portray him. He's he's sort of fallen into this lifestyle because he's not facing up to his past. And, you know, as we all know, like if you have an estrangement from a family member, there's usually something deep at its core but oftentimes it could be a misunderstanding and so Danny I actually read read a review the other day that called Danny a chronic alcoholic and I was really I was appalled because I was like no he's not that you've kind of misinterpreted he's not that he's actually he's just a lost kind of soul who's who's turning he's he's hiding inside his antics and his you know his his party lifestyle and things like that but what I really do like about how the plot went you know I'm I'm the the classic pantser as they like to call you you know I don't know what's going along but but throughout the book as Danny becomes this guru and starts to at first he gets these letters and you know he's doing it for the money he's been offered 300 pounds to answer a few letters and he's like well why not you know you know at first he he's very flippant about it and he's like well how can I ever give advice and so he uses his trademark humor and covering up of stuff which he's done in his own life he's used humor and and partying to sort of cover up why he is like he is very soon he realizes he starts to realize the responsibility that he's been given and he, he reads these letters and wants to do the right thing but the brilliant thing about it is that he digs so deep he has to go back into his own past to be able to give answers and what I like about it is that you know without giving anything away yes he does give some really good advice but all the sort of stuff that he's grappling with is actually in it's been inside him all the time and it just takes him to face up to his past and so that's the story about as how his his sister and niece are now back in his life and he has to face all the stuff as to why why they weren't in the first place and stuff. And so so the people, um, I use a phrase that I really liked. I kind of wanted to use it at one stage. I loved this phrase so much. I wanted to use it in the title, but that soon got booted out the window. But he uses the phrase useful strangers in the book. And and I find, I mean, we've all come across a useful stranger oh, yeah. in our life at, at, at a good time or a bad time. You know, where, where someone will say something, someone on a bus or someone at a bus seat or someone in a pub or, or you know, a friend you're just chatting to will say something that resonates with you that mm. can actually change the path of your, you know, without being too dramatic, it, it can actually change the path of your life and so I like that that he's a useful stranger but these strangers are useful to him as well. You mentioned earlier that the book is written from two points of view you've got Danny's and Wolfie's and between them we unearthed the family secrets and what led to the estrangement between Danny and his sister Lou. Mm. So I wanted to ask you were either of these characters inspired by a real life person? No, not at all. And people love to ask me that about my characters because they're kind of like, oh, yeah. I mean, I suppose every author gets that actually. Oh, yeah. dish, dish the dirt. <laughs> a- a- absolutely not. Where uh, uh, both, it, you know, 
I don't know what it says about me, but both voices came very easily to me, like writing as a man. I set myself that challenge. I knew I was going to do that. Even though I'd written as a, a young boy, yeah. I thought well, it's kind of a different thing to write as a man. And I really wanted to set myself that challenge. And, and I thought I was going to temper it with writing in Lou's voice. Mm. And so at least that would be closer to me, and, you know, and that would give me a bit of light relief. But instead I chose to write as a 15-year-old girl. So I don't know where I went. <laughs> But they're not based on, no, neither of them are based on anybody. The only thing that I can say is is real is the name Mulberry. I mean, it's a very unusual name yes. and that, wor- that, that works into the plot well because, you know, his, his niece found him out of, you know, she didn't even know he existed and then suddenly, but she recognised the surname because that was her mother's maiden name. But that I was walking, as you do, I was walking through a graveyard. I was walking through a graveyard in London a few years ago. I I think I was still writing Norman or Norman might have just been going to come. Anyway, it it was sort of maybe three or four years ago and I was walking through a graveyard and I saw this gravestone with the name mulberry on it and I just thought oh, I lo- I think it's because I associate I love I grew up with a mulberry tree and we just used yes. to eat mulberries until we were purple in the face sort of thing and so it really appealed to me and I, I, I was like I'm going to use that in a book one day and so I did and so the name I don't know where the Danny came from but the name Danny Mulberry was right there in my head and I wrote but the interesting nice lovely story about it is the book came out, um, I've been back to that gravestone since because it's quite near where I stay when I go to London. And then a couple of weeks ago, just, just after the book, the book had just come out and a friend of mine was going to London and she took the book to the graveyard and she put, plonked it next to it and took photos and stuff like that, which I haven't shared on social media because that's not very nice for the family of, you know, it's probably a bit of an invasion of privacy, but it was so nice. So yes, to answer your question, no, there's, there's really no, I mean, I guess, Danny is every guy that I've ever known you know that any of us have ever known really and funnily enough you'll you'll get this because you've read the book but if people are listening and they haven't read the book they'll well they'll get it when they do read it um there's another character obviously Dom who is his best friend and who is you know isn't he Mr Mr Lovely nicest guy in the world and my mum after my mum read it she said to me she said she sent me a message she said oh she said you tell me if if um if Dom rang you up and asked you to come and spend the rest of your life with him and George, would you do it? And I was just thinking, no, but I would with Danny. <laughs> I was just thinking, it's so interesting how different people appeal. And I did say that. I remember saying to my agent when she first read the book and she said, oh, I love Danny, but gosh, he's a bit of a mess, isn't he? And I said, yeah, do you know what? I think I was writing Danny for me because he, he was a bit of a mess, but you know, when you see the good in someone, and I love a bit of a, un, a yeah, unpolished diamond sort of thing, you know the good in people, and you like to look yeah. for the good in people. So, right from the start, I think when you start to read Danny, like from the first couple of pages, you're like, okay, who's this guy? But a friend of mine did say that she had read. She said, and by the end of that first chapter, she goes, "I was actually already in love with Danny." She said, at first, I thought, "Oh my god, what?" Yeah. And, and then she said, "No, I could see that little bit of good." in him so I saw more than a little bit of good in Danny you know oh, just good. just the way that he he interacted with both Dom and George it doesn't take long before you can see that he's only the way he is because of this great sadness that yeah he, that he holds in his heart and obviously when we meet Wolfie we learn more speaking of Wolfie mm. he was a beautiful character and her voice was so strong but she also carried a great deal on her young shoulders didn't she yeah, and I think I mean I've got quite a few friends, and and I don't 
it didn't strike me at first that I've written two books about um, single parents. It, It really didn't strike me at first, but there you go. I mean, it struck me after a while. I was like, yeah. oh, same, you know. But I think that's a really um, interesting relationship when it's a a one-child family and a single parent, you know. And I remember saying this in interviews about Norman, you know, Norman and Sadie were each other's heroes because they had to be. And in this, I think it's, you know, it goes back to that thing I was saying about not wanting to write a story about um, about someone with depression. And so I consciously um, wrote Lou a little bit kind of off the page, like she's there and she's central to the story, but she doesn't have her own voice now. And we hear that from people around her. And I think that's why I wanted to show just how that relationship, that parental relationship, if, if it is a single child and a single parent, and the parent does have problems, how that ch- child has to grow up quickly or take on a role. And, you know, obviously straight away, like Wolfie has taken on that, rightly or wrongly. I mean, Lou is not a complete mess or anything like that. But Wolfie has, as children do, I think they take on this worry and they she's taken on the role of thinking she has to protect and look after her mother. You know, that's a big weight for small shoulders. But on the other side of it, it develops a character that's very strong and it develops it. You know, I, I love Wolfie's voice as well. Like, I think she's quite dark and cheeky and she's not like I was when I was 15, but I think she's like how I would have liked to have been. <laughs> Indeed, quite self-sufficient and quite, she has a, a strong sense of responsibility. Yeah, she definitely does. She mm. does. And she she does have a father, but he's not in the picture sort of mm. thing. She has support around her, but she's she's so in her own head. She's taken on everything. She sort of takes on the world and she's you know, she faces up to it as well. She takes it on and she's done a great job. As I mentioned in my introduction, much like in The Funny Thing About Norman Foreman, you've delved into grief and indeed into depression and its debilitating effects, not only on those who suffer from it, but those around them. Hmm. Probably already answered this. Obviously, this was a deliberate ploy on your part, but, but why? Why was this important for you to explore in this novel? Yeah, I think I'll always, I hope I always will, because I think it's the books I like to read, to have a meaning, to have something behind them, a bit of substance, but also just because of the person that I am, I I do like to have a bit of humour as well. I just think there's so, I mean, it's never going to be a book, it's never going to be like a poster about a sort of, you know, the poster girl about depression or anything like that, like you know, like sorrow and bliss or something like that, that is, you know, it's quite overtly that. But I think by not having it as say the main theme or the overwhelming you know everything in the book is about this the feeling and and what happens in depression I think by having it almost just running through it as a vein as a background I think that's quite realistic because I think that's that's what life is and I, I I would like to think that people would read it and think oh god well maybe I'll think about so and so whose mother was a bit you know, interesting and and things like that and and how their life might have been. And so I think it's because it's, uh, yeah, I think it's just because it's so prevalent. Yeah, as I said, you wouldn't want, I wouldn't want it to be a poster book for depression or anything like that, but that it's, it's there, it's out there and it needs dealing with and things like that. So, yeah. I think what I love about this book is that once again, like with Norman Foreman, you've tapped into these feelings with such tenderness and sensitivity, even though Mm. it's not the main theme of the book how do you do this how do you tap into those feelings and and get inside say you know Wolfie's head or Danny's head 
Oh, it actually comes very easily. I don't know, again, what that says about me, but I sort of do, you know, like when I write, I do have to be in the right frame of mind. And then I I think I just drift off like when you're a kid and you do, you're doing daydreams and things like that. I think I just drift off and, and imagine what it would be like to be in those situations. You know, I find it quite easy. I have quite a visual imagination. So I think the way that I write, I imagine a scene as a as a little vignette from a movie and then I write everything, you know, right, you know, to the to whatever's in the background and whatever. I just think, oh, I've seen that as a movie in my head. And I sort of then will write, will write that. But I do find it quite easy. And I always do wonder what that says about me. <laughs> You're <laughs> but, an empathetic person. <laughs> I guess, I guess, yeah. And what did you know what that's probably quite true? Because I do often to the detriment, and this makes me sound like a really, you know, holier than thou, but I do sometimes empathize. I can put myself in someone's position really easily, almost to the detriment of myself because you think oh that person oh I don't want her to feel like that and so I won't I won't say or do a certain thing you know that can obviously be very nice that's just kindness really but Mm -hmm. but you know sometimes if I if I can see how something an action of one person would affect another person I I try and avoid that so it is empathy you're right yeah which is lovely thank you thank you for pointing that out My absolute pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Julietta, you also have the marvellous ability to create a cast of brilliantly drawn characters or supporting characters, that is. We have Dom and George that we've mentioned before. We have Ray the neighbour and Pete the journo, as Mm. well as Lou, of course. Where do you draw inspiration for these other characters? And do you know who they're going to be when you start out or do they just show up on the page? They really do show up on the page. (laughs) I remember when Ray showed up, I just, I was just imagining, I guess it was one of those little vignettes. I was just imagining Danny in his back shed doing something (laughs) ridiculous. And I thought, there's got to be someone watching him. And then I thought, what's better than a nosy neighbour? And then you don't want to be too cliched. So he's not a nosy neighbour. And, you know, Ray has his whole own story that never got in the book and poor old Ray. Ray's actually a lovely old bloke, although he doesn't seem it in the book, but you you get a glimpse of it at the end. But yeah, people just seem to walk on and walk off. And and again, it's that movie sort of vignette thing, because you know, you can't have an empty set if it was in a movie. So people have got to walk on and off. And you just, honestly, maybe I am a little bit, I'm sure, I'm sure you're a writer. I'm sure this must happen to you as well. But if you're imagining something, somebody walks past and you go, oh yeah, who can that person be? And that person turns into, and that's exactly what happened with Ray. Like I wanted some guy to see Danny, I don't know, you know, like having a wee in the back garden or something, which is what he did in the, in the winter and things like that. And I wanted someone to see it. And so Ray evolved from that. He was just just gorgeous. I I almost imagined, I don't know if this is probably, you know, a Mrs. Jessup, um, Mm. Bugging her nose over the backyard fence. Oh, God, that was hilarious. I love people who can still remember Mrs. Jessup. That makes me laugh. (laughs) What makes me sound old, right? No. (laughs) Well, it it makes me feel younger again. (laughs) Like, aha, she knows Mrs. Jessup. We still say it. So, how are you being a Mrs. Jessup these days? That was a great character. Imagine having written the Sullivans and having written Mrs. Jessup. Like, to, you don't remember any of it. Well, you probably do, but you, but you remember Mrs. Jessup, don't you? 
<laughs> I certainly do. Uh, now, reflecting on your books, each has been set in the UK. And mm. I know you divide your time between the UK and, and here, or you have in the past, certainly. But but why do you set your books there? And do you think this story could have worked as well as if it was set here in Australia? Well, the reason I set my books there, um, you know, my primary publishing deal is with Penguin in the trans world in the UK. And I happened to be living there when I first started writing Norman. And then I do... Well, I am starting again, I hope, you know, go back and forwards um, between the two. I spent so much of my formative life in the UK that it just comes naturally. And I think the humour in the UK and Australia is very, very similar. Mm. But it's definitely not to say that I would not be writing a book in Australia. And I mean, I, I think I definitely will. Yeah. Um, I just haven't at the moment. But yes, I think I think that someone said to me, actually, oh, you could have written Norman as a little kid that goes from Cairns down to the Melbourne Fringe Festival. <laughs> <laughs> and, I said, and I said, yeah, I could have. Um, this one, again, I think it's the characters because the characters immediately, Danny, when he came into my head, he was a Brit. He really was. And he, I wanted him to live in. And also, I don't know that we, I mean, I probably could say he lived in a garden shed in Vaucluse, but I don't think we, and, and, you know, it's a good thing. I don't think we quite have the division of class in this country that we that there is in the UK. And and I really I really wanted him to be in a super posh neighbourhood that people would recognise as being very posh, and he doesn't belong there. So <laughs> so there is that. But but really, it's it's it's. I would say it's the characters, and they sort of tell me where they're from. But yeah, I'm definitely at some stage. I will. The next book again is written um, halfway through. Well, I'm not halfway through. I wish I was. That's just wishful thinking. I'm, you know, I'm well into book three. And again, that's set in the UK, but it's a love story. So it could be anywhere. It just happens to be, you know, I'm writing things and it just happens to be in the UK. So, but yeah, definitely for the future, there's so much. And especially just the last few days I've spent traveling around regional Victoria, doing some events at libraries and things. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I was traveling with my publicist and Every time we'd leave somewhere, I was like, well, there's book three, there's book four, there's book five. These <laughs> these people I was meeting in, you know, the regional libraries that would come to these events of mine. It was, it's a, it's an absolute little melting pot of creative inspiration, inspiration out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. love that. I love it. Yeah. Last time we spoke, I asked you about writing tips for writers who listen in. And this time I wondered if you might shed some light on the things that you've learned about yourself as a writer that you didn't know before Norman Foreman was published. Yes, I didn't know how to write a book. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it was really interesting because as soon as as soon as Norman was published, people started asking me what my writing process was. And I was like, I don't know, I don't have one because it took me so long and I just did it. I just did it. But this time I've got more of a process. And I think the third time now I know how I feel like I know how to write a book now. Like the second time, um, it was very different because I was writing to to a contract and to a to a deadline, although they never ever pressured me on that. And that was possibly because it was it was the pandemic and things like that. But um it was a very different experience. And so, but I think I think you have to find your own. I mean, I listen to so many podcasts like yours and on writing and things like that. And there's so many different pieces of advice of people who plan plan oh, I listened to one yesterday and this guy was Alex Michelades who wrote The Silent Patient it was such a good interview and but he plans for he, he plans for months and months before he even puts pen to paper he plans he writes an outline and he writes like a 10,000 word outline and stuff like that mm. whereas I couldn't possibly do that but 
I just think you have to find your own way. I mean, any yeah. any, and I still, even though I've got two books out, I still don't feel qualified any more qualified than anyone else who writes, um, whether they're published or not. I don't feel any more qualified to give advice, except the only piece of advice, which is definitely not original advice, is just write until the end. Just just get in there, just write, write until the end. The old, I think it was Stephen King, the best piece of advice that I've ever read is the first draft is just telling yourself the story. So just let go of any preconceptions and and you know. And the other, the other, well, here's, I'm coming up with all advice now, but this again, this again, this isn't mine, but this yeah. is very useful. And I actually did have this in front of me for this second book which was decide yes. how you want your readers to feel and write towards that and I always wanted my readers to feel hope I wanted them to feel sad I wanted them to feel happy I wanted them to feel challenged and I wanted them to feel engaged and I had those words I see I know them off by heart <laughs> I had those words <laughs> and and at every stage especially particularly when I was editing um, at every stage I, I was writing towards that and that was sort of like you know your north star or whatever you yeah. want to call it yeah yeah Fantastic. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. Oh, thank you. Again, as I said, that's not my original um, advice. I wish it was, but it's very, it's easy advice to follow and it's easy yeah. advice to remember as well. Julietta, if there was one thing you'd like readers to take away from this book, what would it be? It would be the feeling of hope and the feeling of, and as I write, circling back right to what the book is about, is is the power of forgiveness really it, it's so powerful it's so powerful it, for yourself for the other person for the situation it's just you know obviously everything not everything in life is forgivable but if I think forgiveness is something that frees you completely like it's absolutely so freeing to you you've said that you're working on another book can you give us any clues well I wish I wish someone could give me a clue it's a love story which is but it's a love story you know again it's almost a cliche to say it's a love story with a difference but it really is with the difference so it's a sort of a very grown-up love story and it takes it's it, it covers 25 years from when people meet until a certain event so yeah it's very different for me it's written just one point of view this time so I'm carrying that through yeah and I'm really 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 enjoying writing it I love it have you ever thought about maybe picking up Norman Foreman's story again? Yeah, definitely, because so many people have asked me. And I think I probably said to you, because my standard answer back back when I was promoting that was I didn't know about whether writing another book about Norman, but I definitely hadn't finished with Leonard because yeah. I love Leonard. But since then, yeah, look, uh, there is a little bit of an itch of Norman, but I think he would, I think it would have to be probably another two, three books time because he's still, you know, in my mind, he's still Young. 12. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think he'd have to be quite a bit older. And, and you know, I also say, oh, you know, maybe I'll make him grow up and he'll be an accountant or a, or maybe I'll write a thriller and make him a murderer. Oh, no, I couldn't do that. <laughs> I think it would have to be something. I think I'd have to come up with a pretty good um, and, and absolutely right for Norman's storyline to go there again because I wouldn't yeah. want to write the same book again you know now he's off to Montreal or something like that I I think it would be easy to do that and it would probably be quite funny and quite sweet but I think he needs to grow up a little bit and I think it has, definitely hasn't come to me yet but I think that there would, there would be a story for him out there when he's a little bit older not as a grown man or anything like that but you know probably 19 20 or something like that yeah. and just and and then we can delve into how his past affected his future <laughs> so there's always a chance strangely someone I think it was it was either my agent or it was someone who's it was someone in the UK who who only just read sincerely me and sent me a message and said 
my gosh, I've just had this amazing thought. Is Danny Norman's father? <laughs> you know what he could be. <laughs> oh, my God. Talk about serendipitous. <laughs> I know. I know. The timings don't really work. But anyway, you never know. We can always crowbar them in. Food for thought there. Yeah. yeah. Julietta, if listeners wanted to connect with you and learn more about you and your books, where can they do that? They can find me on my website, which is just juliettahenderson.com. Or, and I am on Twitter, but I'm sporadically on Twitter. It's not my favourite space. I only go there to read abuse, I think, of other people. It's just, it's awful. But I am on Instagram at Julieta Henderson Author, and I do try and, and anyone who messages me, I get back to them and stuff. So I'm trying, I, I quite, I'm quite interactive on that, and I love to hear from readers. So anyone, feel free to question me and ask me things. And also, because um, both books are actually very good book club books, so I've actually zoomed into a few book clubs of people when they've asked me and stuff and I've, I actually really enjoy that and so um, anything like that I'm I'm really happy to connect with readers at any time. Oh that sounds wonderful. Julieta such a joy to speak with you about Danny, Wolfie, Lou, Dom and George and this wonderful book. Thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books yet again. Thank you Claudine thanks so much for having me. That's a wrap folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinechanellis.com via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.